is Vicki Schick. And when I was young, my parents attended uh, First Baptist Church, which was the church that um, I know Vineyard came from and that Trinity ultimately resulted in. Um, and when I was about seven years old, we, um, a little girl was born. Her name was Gretel Ekstrom. She was born with half a heart. And I just remember we would be praying for her and um, they didn't expect her to live very long. Um, but little by little, she kept on living and we kept on praying. And as a whole church, I just remember that sense of surrounding and coming to um, pray for this, for this girl. Um, I was friends with the older sister, and so we, my parents were pretty close with the family. And we just prayed, and it was like a miracle. And we saw the power of God in our prayers. Just, you know, someone who was not expected to live very long lived for six years that she did. And it was just um, definitely impacted um, my life and the way that um, my prayer life has been shaped, that, you know, God can... God does do miracles. He responds. He's active, and um, he sh brings churches together in prayer. Um, definitely because of um, what happened, and I think that continued. And I know in my life it's continued. Just praying that you know, knowing that God moves and works, and miracles happen. Testing, testing. Here I am. Good morning. My name is Betsy. Next week is going to be our anniversary celebration, and that was just kind of a taste of some of the stories that you'll hear next week. We've interviewed a lot of people, including some um, founding members of this church and many of you that are sitting here today, and we're telling the story of the church. So from the early days, just meeting to pray for this little girl, Gretel Ekstrom, with a heart defect, and how kind of out of, out of that prayer time, um, the Lord built a church, and we are the fruit of that. And so we'll be telling that story and just celebrating what God has done um, through the early years, through the transitions this church has been through, and looking forward to where we're going. So I encourage you all to make it um, next week. There'll be a video. We'll have some worship, some throwback songs. So all of you that are kind of missing some songs, you know, we'll see what, what comes up. Um, and then we'll have, celebrate afterwards with um, some grilling and some cake and um, a bouncy house for the kids. And So join us next week on the 23rd for our anniversary celebration. This morning's scripture reading comes from Matthew 20, 17 through 34. It can be found starting on page 825 in the Bible under your seat. Matthew 20, 17 through 34. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? And she said, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You don't know what you're asking. 
Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, We're able. And he said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes and immediately... They recovered their sight and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Mike. Happy to be with you here this morning. I want to begin just by acknowledging the the fathers in the room. Today's Father's Day. I know that culturally we're we're in this moment where the role of the father and the the very unique role that 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 is is sort of being marginalized in, in some of our speech and I want you to know that your role in the home is valuable and important to God. So my prayer for those of you who are, who are presently fathering is that you would do so with the love of our Father who is in heaven, with patience and grace, not with, with anger and, and controlling whatever, but with, with grace and love, um, seeking the good of your children. I know that many of us, many of the fathers in this room are, are seeking to do that, and, and so I'm, I'm grateful Weird transition, though. Father's Day is also the least attended Sunday in the entire year, which is kind of hilariously pathetic to me. But that's, that's sort of why there's a bunch of empty seats right now. And so what I would kind of like to do is to just, like, push everybody outside their comfort zone and say, can everyone just move up? Because there's, like, Ezra. And the, you guys are fine. Kyle, Krista, you're fine. Like, <laughs> There, give me like a stink up here. So if everyone can move forward, that would be awesome. And we'll keep our groans to a minimum as we do so. Ezra's pretty lonely up here, so there we go. Thank you, Caleb. It might seem uncomfortable now, but there's something really beautiful that takes place when you can hear another person singing next to you during worship. It's a really cool, cool thing. So, All right, so today's the last sermon that we'll be doing in, in Matthew for a little while. Obviously, next week we're doing our, our 30th anniversary celebration service. And then after that, we're going to go into a summer series because attendance is, is spotty during the summer. We'd like to do series typically that, that aren't linear so much as you know, sermons where you can kind of just go one at a time and, and extrapolate one, one theme. So we're going to be doing what we're calling gospel in life, basically just applying the gospel to sort of practical day-to-day things like busyness and entertainment and, and work and, and all that. So 
this is our last sermon for a little while in Matthew until the fall. It's kind of a cool stopping place. In fact, if, if like the film of Matthew were being made, this would kind of be like a cliffhanger moment. Many of us have been like so familiarized with, with the story of Matthew that we, we sort of lose touch in some ways with, with the, the drama of what's, what's taking place. So, so I'll kind of unpack that a little bit. We're actually stopping at the moment right before the climax of the gospel begins, right before like the rising action, if you're familiar with like having to diagram stories in, in high school. This is where the rising action takes a, a huge spike. It's about to take a huge spike. So Jesus is about to enter Jerusalem, and when he does, he's going to start a conflict with the religious authorities that's going to, to result in his crucifixion. And so for the last few passages we've studied Jesus has actually been slowly making his way out of Galilee, which is sort of the headquarters of his ministry, and he's making his way toward Jerusalem. And this week he arrives at Jericho, which is essentially the the closest town to Mount Zion. Mount Zion is the the big, huge, plateau-like hill that Jerusalem stands on. Jericho's at the foot of that hill. So if you were a pilgrim coming from Galilee for any number of feasts or whatever that were taking place in Jerusalem, Jericho would be your last stop. And then from there, you would begin to make the 3,000-foot the climb up Mount Zion. So that's where Jesus is right now. He's about to ascend the hill. And so you kind of have to imagine the scene, too. In verse 29, I know I'm skipping ahead, but it gives us the context for everything that comes before it. So in, in verse 29, it mentions that a great crowd has followed him here. So... Basically, like, Jesus has gained this reputation. He's done multiple tours of Galilee. He's gained this reputation. And, and at times, he's had to be kind of hush-hush about his identity and, and, and even instructed people not to talk much about him. But now he's leaving Galilee, and this huge crowd is following him. Like, no anonymity whatsoever. Like, he's, he's going in with an entourage, right? This crowd is following Jesus. And they're supporters and disciples, and they're probably just fans or, like, curious people. They're all with Jesus as he's making his way out of Galilee toward Jerusalem. And most likely, this crowd is a bunch of the population that will be laying palm fronds at his feet on Palm Sunday. So there's all this excitement, but why? What's special about this moment? Because Jesus was a devout Jew. He, he probably made multiple trips to Jerusalem over the course of a, of a calendar year. So why is there a crowd following him this time? So this is a concept we've talked about a few times, but basically one of the things that made the ancient Jews distinct is that they believed that the creator of this world was going to raise up a human being to save his people and restore creation to what it was meant to be. Now, across the board, this was expected to be a political figure. So he was going to show up, purify Israel, uh, restore the temple, beat down Israel's competitors, and basically reestablish them as, as a political entity. So he was sort of a religio-political leader. And the idea is that when this, this figure, Messiah, would come, he was going to bring the glory of God, the kingdom of God, the glory of God, back to the world, starting with the city of Jerusalem. And so there's this expectation that Messiah would make this sort of triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and that would be the beginning of, of the moment the kingdom comes. So this crowd has seen Jesus teach. They've seen him heal. He's the most amazing teacher they've ever encountered. He's the, the most obvious candidate for Messiah that they've ever encountered. And this whole time, they've been waiting for the moment when he finally does the thing that will set him apart as Messiah. When is he going to restore people for God? When is he going to bring about salvation? When is he going to do what Messiah does? So in today's passage, Jesus is making his way to the city. And, and we don't know if it's because 
he's sort of been having more confrontations with the religious authorities, or maybe it's for some other reason, but this crowd senses that something is different, and they begin to follow him out of Galilee to Jerusalem. It's like they, they think he's about to make that triumphant entry into the city. So they, they sense that when he gets into the city, Jesus is going to make some kind of announcement that he's the Messiah. They realize that Jesus is going to do something big, and so they're hoping it's the moment when he comes into his glory, and they're following him because they want a piece of it. They want to take part in the moment when Jesus comes into his glory. And what's amazing is that, like, if, if that is what the crowds are thinking, they're actually right in a whole bunch of ways. They're actually right. Jesus is about to come into his glory. He is going to announce himself as the Savior. He is going to set people apart for, for God, bring about salvation, all of that. But the path of glory that he takes is not going to look so glorious. And so in a week's time, basically a little over a week's time from this moment in, in the, the narrative, this whole crowd will have turned on Jesus and all of his disciples will have abandoned him. Because the path of glory for Jesus does not look that glorious to most of us. In fact, the, the path of glory will look sort of like what Jesus describes at the beginning of today's passage. So check out 17 to 19, if you, if you have your Bibles open. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and he will be raised on the third day. So here Jesus gets a moment away from the crowds, and he takes his 12 disciples aside. These would have been sort of disciples that had privileged access to, to Jesus, right? They, they learned things that, that no one else got to learn. And there's actually the third time that Jesus has done this, where he takes them aside, and he predicts his own death. But he, he adds way more detail this time than he, than he has in the past. So he says that what they're going to at the top of the hill is not fanfare and comfort and status and luxury. Really what's going to happen is that the religious authorities of the Jews are going to turn against Jesus. He's going to be handed over to the Roman authorities as well. So all the the major authorities that that are over Jesus will turn against him, and he will be humiliated, tortured, and executed. And it's only on the other side of that darkness that Jesus will, will rise again. And so what we've got to understand is that pretty much none of this, none of what Jesus says here is at all lining up with the expectations for what Messiah would do. Like, this this whole thing about dying and rising, this was not part of the plan. Neither of those things, death or resurrection, were, were part of the Old Testament picture of Messiah, at least not in the way that folks were reading the Old Testament. Messiah was supposed to be this political figure who would bring national restoration. So you've got to imagine that the disciples are listening to this and they're thinking, okay, that sounds horrible. At what point, where's the salvation part? When does the salvation part happen, right? When does, when's the part when the kingdom comes? Where's the glory? Because we want to take part in that. The death and resurrection, let's get past that part and get to the glory part. What the disciples didn't realize is that Jesus was describing to them the moment that the kingdom would come. He was describing them to them precisely the way it would happen, the way salvation would be purchased. The act that was going to set Jesus apart as Messiah was about to happen, but it wasn't going to be by revolution. It was going to be by an act of costly love. 
that would bring restoration to humanity by restoring their relationship with God, which takes place through, through forgiveness. Jesus was going to pour himself out in service to God and service to others. He was going to give everything of himself. He was going to die as he had lived by costly love. And so I think it's no wonder why the crowds abandoned Jesus in the end. It's no wonder why the disciples are, are mostly absent at the foot of the cross. They thought that Jesus' life was just sort of like a peaceful runway to the moment where he like bashes into Jerusalem and starts taking names, right? Like that's how they pictured why he was doing all this sort of peaceful rabbi thing. But no, instead, all along, Jesus showing the glory of the kingdom, but it was too costly of a glory for most people. And so what we're going to see unpacked this morning is this idea that if we want to take part in Jesus' glory, we have to take part in his way of life. And so what we're going to do this morning, we're basically just going to take that idea and, and explore it. Simple sermon, one idea. If we want to take part in Jesus' glory, we have to take part in his way of life. And so I, I think we'll explore the idea in two ways. We'll, we'll ask two questions of the passage and, and see what the answer is. So first, what will it cost to take part in Christ's glory? And then the second question will be, what does it mean to take part in Christ's glory? So the first one, what will it cost? So the answer to this, what, what will it cost to take part in, in Christ's glory? It's going to get developed over a conversation that happens between two of Jesus' disciples and Jesus and the mom of those two, th- two disciples. This part is hilarious to me. I don't know if she was put up to this or if like this whole thing was her idea, but James and John have their mom approach Jesus and plead for, for their glory, basically. So let's read that part. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, because apparently she'd be harder to say no to, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. So, the wife of Zebedee, mother of James and John, she approaches Jesus. And basically what she's asking, you know, when someone would, would occupy their throne, the person with sort of the second highest amount of authority would sit on their right hand. And if there were two people who had that amount of authority, there'd be one on the right and one on the left. That's essentially what she's asking for. She's asking that, like, hey, we're here in Jericho. Whatever's happening seems really significant. You seem like you're about to take your throne. So... I'm going to shoehorn in this plea for my sons that you would please put them at your right and your left. Give them more glory, more authority than anyone else in your kingdom. It's a, it's a plea for glory. They want a piece of Jesus' glory. But really, they, they may be asking for glory, but it's, it's a different kind of glory, right? They're imagining themselves presiding over Jesus' kingdom, exercising authority that, that no one else has. It's importance that they're looking for. It's a, it's a kind of power, a kind of fame. I think we're often after the same thing. Many of us are, are driven by different kinds of ambition, and, and not all ambition is bad, not at all. But I think it's important to sort of examine ourselves and see what motivates most of our ambition. So there was a great British miniseries a, a while back called Extras. Is anybody familiar with Extras? You are? Awesome. That's so good. At least there's one. So I'm not endorsing all the content of, of extras. Obviously, like, use your conscience. But it, it is really sort of a, a great and, uh, and sometimes very beautiful show. Very funny. It was written by and starring Ricky Gervais, who is responsible for creating The Office. 
Um, he plays a character named Andy Millman, who's sort of this aspiring actor. And he's, he's trying to make it in cinema, but he only ever gets cast in these sort of small extra roles. And for the most part, he's, he's kind of more or less content, but he really wants to be the serious film actor. He's got real talent. And actually, Gervais, his performance is tremendous in, in, in the show. Well, anyway, Andy agrees to take on this role on a television show that's just utterly beneath him. It's the most ridiculous thing. It's called When the Whistle Blows. And I'm trying to think of a show that it would be like, but it would be like sort of like a bad Big Bang Theory sort of, I mean, just like zany humor, that sort of thing. So he takes on this role on the show, and he, he just hates himself for it, but the show becomes wildly popular. And he becomes really popular on the show. And so he, he keeps doing it, but the more he does it, the more he'll be ruled out for serious work. In fact, if he transitions into serious work at this point, he may lose a ton of his popularity, even though the work would be more meaningful to him. And so for much of the show, he has to kind of navigate the tension of these two kinds of ambition, an ambition for meaning and an ambition for fame and importance and superiority. And he starts like wrecking relationships with his friends because he just can't figure out what he wants. And he's becoming more vain as well because deep down, he, he actually loves the popularity that he's getting, even though he hates the work he's doing. He loves the popularity that he's getting. And so things sort of come to a head where he gets the chance to actually be the actor that he, that he wants to be, serious, heartfelt actor, but, but it will mean leaving much of his popularity. He'll be on stage, small films. And so in order to take the chance, he will have to give up his importance, give up his popularity, despite how, how stupid the way he's winning it is. And there's this moment where his agent is fed up with him, and he's demanding that he make a decision. Do you want fame, or do you want meaning? And without hesitation, he says, I want fame. And it's this kind of heartbreaking moment where you, you think, like, man, the whole show is culminating in him wanting meaning. How could he answer? But it's, the heartbreaking moment is that he answers instantaneously, no hesitation, like, I want fame. And then the, the, the show takes off. Later on, Andy has this quote where he's realizing that the fame he went after has has robbed him of everything, robbed him of friends, robbed him of life. He ends up on this like Big Brother style reality TV show and it's utterly hilarious. But as he's sort of mourning what's been lost, he says something to the effect of the papers followed me around and convinced people I'm important and they convinced me too. He wanted to have this meaningful career, but he let it pass him by when he realized that it would cost him his status, cost him his self-importance. We're desperate for a sense that we are important. And like we talked about last week, it's not just that we want to be important, it's that we want to be the most important. We want importance that will give us control, that will elevate us above other people, that will cause people to worship us. For most of us, we won't have the chance at real fame or something like that, but we'll take any version of it we can, any, any way to exercise authority. Sometimes it's actually church where we do that. A congregation is a convenient place to be a big fish in a small pond. It's a place where you can manipulate people, where you can go after praise, look for recognition. Sometimes it's in our homes that we do this with our spouses and our children. Maybe we put on a humble appearance outside, but once we're home, we're controlling and cruel. Because after all, they need to recognize our authority. Things would be so much easier if they just did things our way. 
We laugh at the audacity of James and John, but if given the chance, I think we'd probably, most of us, do the same thing. We want to follow the way of Jesus, but we realize that it will cost us our sense of self-importance. And many of us decide, rather than truly living by the way of Jesus, we just try to come to church, put up a front. We may not actually be participating in the glory of Christ, but at least people will think we are. We use the way of Jesus to supplement our egos. We're so afraid of missing out on cheap self-importance that we make the same choice as Andy in extras, and we let real meaning pass us by. We miss out on life because we're too afraid of missing out on ridiculous things. Jesus turns to James and John now, and he addresses them directly, and what he points out is, is a lot like what we learned last week. The way of Jesus is costly. It isn't the way of status. So let's read 22 to 23. Jesus answers, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We're able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. So James and John, they want to participate in Jesus' glory, and so Jesus asks them if they are willing to do what it takes to to do that? Are they willing to suffer, in other words? Are they willing to sacrifice? And Jesus uses this imagery from the the Hebrew scriptures, from the Old Testament, of the cup. The cup was an image that that got innovated by Israel's prophets, and it, it was a symbol of the wrath of God, like the judgment of God. As Christians, we believe that when Jesus suffered, the way his way of life and and his mission on earth culminated in him absorbing the wrath of God for us to win our forgiveness. And that was a task that only he could take on because he was God in the flesh. And so I don't think he's saying that James and John are going to like absorb the wrath of God, but instead he's saying that just as my mission will culminate in suffering in order for you to take part in my mission, you'll suffer too. And both James and John claim they can do it. Now, in chapter 26, they will tuck tail and abandon him in the Garden of Gethsemane. But right now, they're confident that, yes, we are able to do it. We are prepared to suffer. And, and what's interesting to me is that Jesus doesn't call their bluff. He, he doesn't say anything about, are you really ready? Right? There's no, there's no cynical answer to it. The truth is that they're not. But Jesus, that's not the way he interacts with them. At all. In fact, he assures them that they are going to participate in his suffering. They will drink the cup. And this ended up being true. James got beheaded not too long after the church was launched. We don't really have access to, to know what happened to John, but, but there's reliable church tradition that says that he either got exiled for life at best or boiled alive at worst. So it wasn't exactly a romp through the poppy, poppies for John either right? They both took some flack. They did drink the cup in the end, but when they did it, they didn't do it for status. Their motivation had changed. I wonder if this, it was this moment where they began to realize that their motivation would have to be something different. Jesus hints at it right here in the passage. He tells them, hey, you're going to suffer, but the positions you're asking for, they're not mine to give, so it's a really cryptic statement, but what did Jesus just do? He took away their motivation. So now if they're going to follow Jesus, they're not going to be able to do it to boost their self-importance. They can't do it 
so that they'll get a chance to tell someone else what to do or feel more secure about themselves, whatever. They will have to drink the cup of suffering, knowing that it will win them nothing over anybody else. It will not win them status. So Jesus takes away their motivation. What's amazing to me is that by the time James and John faced off with the tortures that came for them, they had discovered a new motivation. It was the kind of motivation that comes from being loved beyond anything they expected for themselves. It was the motivation of seeing a miracle that redefined the world for them. That promised new creation on the other side of that suffering. And so they took it. So here's where we stand. The the way of Jesus will cost us suffering, discomfort, often. And we will not be rewarded with superiority. So this is not exactly a pep talk, right? Anybody feeling motivated yet? Probably the same with James and John. Where is the glory? What, What does it mean to take part in the glory of Christ? That's question two. Here's the thing that's really interesting. This whole conversation takes place because James and John want to take part in Jesus' glory. And what's amazing is that Jesus, we've seen this before, Jesus doesn't criticize them for wanting glory. That's not why he criticizes them. He criticizes them for what they think glory is. So he doesn't criticize them for the longing for glory. He criticizes what they think glory is. And so let's read 24 to 28. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the other ten disciples, they're frustrated at James and John, probably because they didn't have the idea first. And Jesus notices this, and so he, he calls all the disciples up to him, tells them to take a knee. And what he tells them is he compares the way of the world with the way of the kingdom. He compares the way of the world with the way of the kingdom. So at this very moment, the twelve disciples, they're following Jesus while under Roman occupation, right? They're under Roman occupation. Those are probably the Gentiles that Jesus is talking about that the Romans are the ones that lord it over the people under them that exercise authority. They want power, importance, control, but Jesus, ins- Jesus insists that even if that's the way people get by in the world, it will not be the way people get by in his kingdom. The greatest in the kingdom will not be someone who puts others at their disposal. It will be somebody who puts themselves at the disposal of others. That is true greatness. Now, hear what Jesus is saying. He's not saying that service is like, like a cruddy, necessary step leading up to greatness, right? Like it's a, a check that you mark off, kind of a necessary evil, on the way to being great. It's not a transaction. It's like, I'll serve, but only as long as it takes for me to eventually get glory. And lots of folks, I think, think that Christian service is is that, that in Jesus' mind, service is that. Like, it's something you do so you can be rewarded with glory and then not have to serve anymore. But I don't think that, I, I don't know that that's what Jesus has in mind here. I think, well, here, actually, let me expand a little bit on that whole idea. So 
this whole idea that service is on the way to, to glory, it's like a check that you mark off on the way to glory, I think that that's actually what's going on in the next section. So maybe let's jump ahead briefly to illustrate this. I think that would be helpful. So I'm going to read 29 through 34, and just we'll see how this plays out. So as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed Jesus, and behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called to them and said, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. So here's the reason why I want us to explore this a little bit before kind of moving on. After this whole discussion on service, Jesus is going to set out, which means that he's about to ascend the hill into Jerusalem. So this is kind of the, like, the lead-up to the triumphal entry. And the crowds are all around him. And something happens that's happened like a ton of other times before. These two blind men approach Jesus, and they, they want to be healed. Here's the interesting thing. Blind men aren't unclean. They, they're not necessar- necessarily lower in status to anybody else, like some of the children or, or some of the the women that, that were demeaned in first century society. So in other words, there's no reason for the crowd to shove them off. There's no reason culturally why the crowd would be like, don't approach Jesus, right? We've seen that before. With the, when the children approach Jesus, the disciples are like, hold up, he's for adults. That, there's no reason for him to do that here. And yet, what, what do the crowds do? The crowds are trying to stop these two blind men from approaching Jesus, I think it's because the crowds seem to think that the time for healing blind men is over for a little while. Like, this is Jesus' march to Jerusalem, man. He's about to set himself apart as Messiah. He's about to announce himself. He's got his entourage. They're celebrating. They're getting excited. This is the moment that the nation has been waiting for for centuries, which means tough luck, boys. Look him up in a little while after he's more established. But right now, he's about to do his thing, right? Like these, these whole healings, they were sort of a cool thing that Jesus did to muster people to himself, but now's the time to start cracking skulls. There was a time for serving, but now's the time for glory. But as the crowd is rebuking these blind men, as Jesus is on his way to do the thing he was sent to do, with all the commotion around him, he stops, and he looks, and notices these two men, And in the middle of all the commotion of the crowd, he goes up to them, and it says that he is moved with compassion. We translate it in pity, but the Greek word is more like moved with compassion, and he heals them. Serving for Jesus wasn't something he did so that he could get glory. Serving is what made Jesus glorious. Serving wasn't something that he did to get glory. It was something that made Jesus glorious. Glorious. Serving is greatness. It's a really powerful thought. It defies everything we think in our sort of cultural context. But from the perspective of the biblical authors, when we serve, we are approaching our purpose as human beings. So, like, think about this. If, like, we were not made to promote ourselves. We weren't made to find our energy as we gain more importance over other people and compete and win. We were made to serve God and to serve people and to serve creation. We are made to forget ourselves in acts of love. 
And that didn't mean that we were inferior or that we were going to be a doormat. In God's design, humanity's service was the way they ruled the world in cooperation with their creator. Service wasn't at the expense of their nobility. Service was what set humanity apart as royal. Humans weren't glorious in God's design because they were like untouchably powerful, authoritarian, whatever. They weren't glorious because they were self-sufficient. They were glorious because they were servants, stewards of the earth, lovers of each other, defenders of the good, reflections of God's self-giving love. That is what made it a, a noble thing to be human. When we serve We approach true humanness. And the only reason why we don't feel like it is because we've lost touch with the deeper truths of existence. Trinity, the greatest expression of our human nature as it was meant to be is in our service. Our service to each other in acts of love, our service to our neighbors, our service to the materially poor, Out in the marketplace, in day-to-day life, folks are out to get theirs, and and many of us are habituated to do the same thing. And if you don't believe me, just tell me how you feel the next time someone cuts you at Starbucks, right? We are habituated to get ours, to look out for number one. But it must not be so among us. It must not be so among us. So I'll kind of share how I've been reflecting on this lately. I think this whole idea changes the way we think of spirituality. So many of us consider ourselves spiritual, and depending on whether or not you're a Christian, you may define that differently, but we tend to think that sort of the test of our spirituality comes down to what it does for us, right? That our spirituality is successful if it means that we're sort of put together, that we have it all together, that we're comfortable, self-sufficient, sort of developed— I don't know what you think of when you think of spirituality. Our culture is gaining a growing interest in in Eastern religion. So when you think of a spiritual person, you may picture someone doing like a certain kind of meditating or like going on a path of inner healing. Maybe they're into secret knowledge, esotericism, oneism, whatever. But for those of us who are Christians, we, we may be one of the many people who think of spirituality as like recovering the spiritual disciplines, right? Getting back to ancient traditions of how Christians have developed themselves. And maybe it all feels sort of exciting and and ancient and spiritual, and we feel really good about ourselves as we do those disciplines. And some of those things can be great. I'm not saying they're not. But I'll take a stab and say that whether you're a believer or not, a lot of our spirituality excites us because it makes us feel a certain way about ourselves. Our spirituality excites us because of what it's doing for us. And that's sort of the test, right? That's the test of how we know it's real, is what it's doing for us. And deep down, that's what excites us most. We just like this idea of being a spiritual person. We want to be noticed as a spiritual person. At the end of the day, we test the worth of our spirituality by how well it serves us. I think we can tell that this is the case just by watching ourselves. So I'll speak directly to those of you who are, who are Christians. When you finish like a great time in prayer or in the Word or, or whatever, and you just are feeling refreshed, what happens when that one coworker who really annoys you shows up, right? And they start talking, and they start doing that thing that you just hate. I, I'll speak for myself here. 
Like, I know that, that when I encounter the folks in my life who are irritating and I've had that kind of, like, refreshing time, I'm just, like, basking in it or whatever, my reaction is like, man, this guy's ruining my spirituality, right? Like, I was so in touch prior to him showing up. That should reveal something to us, that we think spirituality is about how well it serves us, that someone can biff it for us just by being annoying. But per usual, Jesus flips things on their head. So the test of your spirituality, according to Jesus, is not how well you maintain good feelings or develop yourself. And, and self-development is, is important, and there's like a, that's a big part of, of spirituality. I'm not saying it's not, but what is the test of whether your spirituality is going somewhere? To Jesus, the test of true spirituality, the thing that proves the worth of your spirituality, comes down to how well you give yourself away in concrete terms to God and to others. What sets Christian spirituality apart is that Christian spirituality is about relationship. Relationship to God and relationship to others. And throughout the ages, Christians have practiced many spiritual disciplines like silence and solitude and fasting and prayer and scripture reading and Christian meditation, all kinds of things. Not so that we can be super spiritual people and all our friends will envy us. Instead, they were all there to equip us and prepare us to serve our purpose as humans so that we can be better and better equipped for service to God and service to others. That's the test of real spirituality. And so that's why Jesus can say that the great among us will be servants. The, 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 the first will be a slave. It's because the kind of person who day after day self-forgetfully pours themselves out cheerfully and courageously in service to God and to others, that kind of person is, the, is most often the one who is in touch with God, the one who is in touch with the spiritual realities of our world. The proof is in the service, not in the eloquence of their prayers, not in like how incredible their experience are, experiences are, not that that's unimportant. It's not... In the time they get up front, the proof is in their service. The proof of your spirituality is in your love. And that's a kind of spirituality that our world is losing touch with. It is deeply image-obsessed and and fatigued of Christianity, so it's not really exploring Christianity as having something meaningful to say. And so culturally, we're becoming sort of increasingly enamored with Eastern spiritualities that lack this moral calling, and I sincerely think that that as a result, we're missing out on beauty. Christian spirituality is counterintuitive, and it takes patience to see the beauty of it, but there's glory in it. It's the recovery of our humanness. So what does it mean? What does the glory of Christ mean? It, It means service. And if you want to find the beauty of it, the glory of the way of Jesus, then we have Jesus to look to. He is the one who walked the way of costly love ahead of us. He is the suffering servant who went as a sheep to the slaughter and drank the cup of the wrath of God. He is the one who laid down his life as a ransom for many. And at his moment of greatest glory, on his right and left were not disciples seated on thrones, but thieves hanging on crosses. The crown he wore was not of gold, but of thorns. The sign that hung above his head declared the truth about his kingship, but his executioners had hung it out of irony. Jesus lived the truly human life 
to give humans their lives back. And on the other end of the service was resurrection and freedom and renewal. So to everyone here today, I would, I would encourage you to have an open mind so that you can recognize the hidden beauty of service. And the only way to really come to understand it is if you are fostering a deep relationship with Jesus because it is in his work on the cross that that hidden beauty is revealed. And for a time, following Jesus will come with suffering. And the reason why is because the way of the world is not aligned with the kingdom of God, not yet. But on the other end of the suffering will be renewal, which doesn't mean the end of our service. It will mean the end of the suffering. It will mean the establishment of a kingdom in which service is not a chore, but is the way of life for all who live under God's rule. And and in that case, it, it becomes this joyous, outpouring expression of our status, not as superiors, but as the beloved of God. And that begins now. And so if we would take part in the glory of Christ, let's take part in his way of life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I I thank you for the cross and the resurrection. That by the cross you absorbed our shortcomings, that we do not have to approach you out of shame, so that shame does not have to be the motivator behind what we do, but instead we can be captured by the beauty of the kingdom you're bringing. I thank you for the cross that defeated the powers that claim our hearts. I thank you for the resurrection where new life broke into this world. A life that is often hidden. I pray that you would give us the the eyes to see where it is now before the day where it is made obvious and, and where the glory of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. I pray that we would take part in your kingdom now. Thank you for your grace. As we continue to learn the way of Jesus and falter and give in to our fears, I pray, Lord, that, that you would change our ambitions. Not to be superior, but to be disciples. <laughs>